You're listening to Pastor Jared Ruddy of City Lights Church. If you have your Bibles, turn with me quickly. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I want to offend someone this morning. That's not what I want to do. Uh, wrong message. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 10. I want to encourage someone this morning, but I want to challenge you, and I need you to really work with me on something because I'm going to probably um, might sacrifice one of your holy cows this morning. You know, people, it's interesting um, sometimes we believe things. We don't really know why we believe it. We just believe it. And uh, sometimes the things that we believe actually hold us hostage. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. The scripture says this. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. That's interesting. Paul's saying, okay, now, although we're humans, although we're people... Um, although we live lives in a world where we've got to work jobs and we have conflict with friends and family and, you know, bills come in and people get sick. So in other words, though we're in a world of flesh, we don't wage warfare in these same terms. So what do we do? He says this, for the weapons, verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power. So he begins to talk about spiritual warfare so weapons of our flesh, or weapons of our warfare, are not of the flesh. In other words, we don't fight the enemy with spears and swords and shields. Um, you ever meet anybody like that? They get into prayer time or something like that, and they're coming against the enemy, and they're swinging their arms like this. Paul goes, that, that's great, it just doesn't work, okay? So we, we're not fighting the enemy with swords and spears. So he said, the weapons that we're using, this spiritual warfare, this battle, this conflict that you're in, is not one through might, it's not one through uh, swords or spears, but the weapons we have have divine power to do what? This is interesting. To destroy strongholds. Verse 5, what is a stronghold? We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Another version says like this, the King James, we cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing them into captivity unto the obedience of Christ. I want to speak just for a few moments this morning about spiritual warfare and the understanding that what we see in 2 Corinthians is this, that if we don't take our thoughts captive, our thoughts will take us captive. Have you ever... Um, met somebody who is absolutely petrified of something that has no power. Maybe when you were little, you experienced that. You know what I'm talking about? You, 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 you're, when you actually had something like that happen to me the other day, and I had to tell myself, Jared, you're a grown man, you're 26 years old, no one's going to come in the house. Okay. But, uh, you know, Erin went away for a little bit. You know, she's into CrossFit and stuff like that, so I'm okay. You know, I'm safe when she's around. But uh, she was out. Of, she went out for a little bit, and I'm thinking, okay, what, what's going to come to the house? But you know what I'm talking about? When you're young, and, you, and it's dark, and you feel that type, that monster is going to jump out of the closet. Just at any moment, something's going to snap. And as you get older, you, you stop worrying about, you know, monsters coming out of the closet. But you still do have some sort of false, irrational fears. And there's all different types of phobias. Uh, people get claustrophobic. Uh, I'm talking about Erin. She's not here. That gets me in trouble. But when uh, we were on our honeymoon, the idea of an ocean. We're in Mexico, and you can see the ocean floor, and she's still wondering what's going to get her feet. I'm like, Erin, we're, we're not even in the ocean yet. We're ankle deep. You know, but there's people that have phobias of elevators, right? I don't know if you have a phobias of spiders. There could be a, if I told you there's a spider here in this room, there's people that would begin to freak out over a spider. You know what I'm saying? Phobias. Irrational fears, but feel rational. 
Now, what's interesting about that is that uh, to be delivered or set free from something like that, to be able to say, I'm no longer scared of spiders or snakes or whatever your type of irrational fear, just think about it for a second. Okay, there it is. Your heart's racing. You're panicking now. You're ready to leave. All right, that, that idea of coming to the edge of a cliff, you know, and looking down, whatever those types of things that pull on you, you feel these rational fears. And as we get older, we're not worried necessarily about the monster coming out of the closet. Then we're maybe concerned about these fears, though, of thinking that spider from, you know, way back at the end of the church is going to somehow climb up here and get me, right? It's interesting. Fear. Paul says this, we are in a conflict a spiritual conflict, a warfare, literally, that you're battling against something, whether you realize this or not, that you are battling against something, spiritual warfare. You're battling against who? We understand as Christians that that answer is simple, Satan and the demonic world. Now, when you start thinking about Satan, what is the image that comes to your mind? That's a rhetorical question. Let me tell you a story. When I was younger, we hosted a play at our church, and maybe you've seen one of these plays or been a part of one of these plays. Maybe it literally scared the hell out of you. It did for me. I use that because the, the name of the play, um, where we, we have this epic story of people caught in a life and death situation. And I might offend somebody here for a second. I apologize. You still love me, all right, wherever you are. But the story, the scene would open and it would be this, you know, kind of the whole idea was based around eternity. It was based around, do you know where you're going? Are you going to heaven or hell? And the story would basically happen. The scene would open up and there would be one person in the scene that would know Christ. The other person wouldn't know Christ. And then there would be a life and death situation. In a moment, somebody would die and they'd be standing before the gates of heaven. And if a person knew Christ, they'd be entered into heaven. And if they didn't know Christ... Satan would come out, and I'm telling you as a child, my heart would explode. Anyone else? And when he came out, it was like the most vicious music would come out, like, right? Satan would come out, and he'd just like, with a couple demons, and the demons would just like, were like thrilled. And Satan was so excited to have this person that denied Jesus, and he pulled and you know the people would kick and scream kind of on the way back to hell and the whole thing went back and forth and that's why I say it literally scared the hell out of me because I was like I want to be a Christian I just don't want to go with that guy because that and I, I remember like sitting there with hundreds of people thinking that Satan is going to come out of the thing and grab me and take me with him I didn't know he was going backstage but I was just wondering where he's going and what's interesting about that is that so many times, and in that moment, I'm thinking, I want to be a Christian because I don't want to go there, not realizing, interestingly enough, I want to challenge your perspective on spiritual warfare in that this, spiritual warfare, I'm going to make an extreme statement, the lie of spiritual warfare is that the war still continues. The lie of spiritual warfare is that the war still continues. Track with me for a second. We don't realize this, that the Christian perspective of spiritual warfare has been absolutely influenced by Greek mythology. We don't recognize that we look at Satan as God's arch enemy and in a turn, or in a sense, equal. If I say light, you say dark. If I say black, you say white. If I say sweet, you say sour. If I say big, you say small. We, we live in a world of contrasts. We live in a world where something is great, that means the other thing is not great. We constantly compare and contrast. But when I say God, who do you say? 
You can't say Satan because the book of Psalms says, for he is our God and there is no other, there is no equal. So to view Satan as God's arch enemy is nothing short of Greek mythology. It's not Christianity. I'll press it one step farther. What we see in the book of Revelation is this, is that Satan is not looking forward to hell. He is tormented in hell. That hell is not Satan's victory. He is not the god of the underworld. He is not happy there. It's not something where at the end of the day he gets to go, oh good, I'm going to torture Christians. And if you've read a book about that, I'm sorry it's wrong. Actually, I'm happy it's wrong. Because Satan does not torment Christians in heaven or he does not torment unbelievers in hell. Satan is vanquished and the book of Revelation clearly tells us that hell is his ultimate desolation, not his victory. But I don't understand that. Because the way that it is often portrayed as if Satan somehow wins, but I'll say this, is Satan wins in hell, Satan wins the war. It's not true. Satan has been defeated. Satan has been defeated. It's interesting. Chapter 10 in the book of Luke, Jesus sends out 72 disciples to cast out demons and heal the sick, and they come back rejoicing. I mean, they're ecstatic. And I don't know if you've ever casted out a demon or heard about it, seen it. It's pretty wild. You cast out a demon. I have seen a handful of them. And wow, it is really something else. And you see somebody have truly supernatural strength or levitate off the ground or their tongue does things. It's really interesting. Really wild. And these disciples come back and they say, we casted out demons. And you know what Jesus' response was? It's interesting. He goes, guys, uh, okay, I'm glad you're excited. I saw Satan fall from heaven. My question to you this morning is simply this. If Satan fell from heaven, then why do we keep putting him back up there? Why do we continue to make a war that has been defeated? I'm not saying that spiritual warfare is not real. And everyone, I'm not sure about this. I'm simply saying the war has been won. Your agreement with who is over your life determines everything. The book of Colossians tells us that Jesus on the cross spoiled principalities and powers. The word there is disarmed. He took out the weapon. Satan, in opposed to our lives, is weaponless. There's no bullets in the gun. He has no power. Now, maybe the religious thing in you is going, well, hold on, but Satan's attacking me. Oh, absolutely he's attacking you. Absolutely there's conflict. Don't get me wrong. But the scripture is clear that it's this. First Peter tells us, that Satan goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that he is a lion. It means that he is looking for willing prey to be devoured. I'll take it one step further. Satan fell from heaven. Remember what Satan was in the garden? What did he come to Adam and Eve as? A snake. Think about that. So it's interesting, as you look at the scripture, Satan starts as a snake in the book of Genesis. What does he look like in the book of Revelation? He's a dragon. Now my question is, who changed, Satan or our perception? Did Satan someday wake up and go like, look, I'm a dragon now? No, he is the father of all lies. It's kind of like Wizard of Oz, you know, the great and powerful Oz, and then you find out, huh, you're Oz? I truly believe with every single thing in me, that at the end of time, when we see Satan, the thing that is going to shock us is not about how big and powerful and as great as he is, but we're going to look at him and go, you did that? This was all smoke and mirrors. You confuse the world 
trying to show that you're powerful, and at the end of the day, you're the same snake in the garden. But what happens, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, he takes us captive with false imaginations, with false philosophies, with false understandings, with fear, with manipulation and concern, to the point where Paul says this, this is spiritual warfare. Take thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. In other words, is this congruent with what Christ has accomplished on the cross? Is this congruent with the gospel? I, I wasn't very good at geometry, and if you are, I'm, I'm still confused by geometry when I look at it, but you measure those things out, and the one thing I learned in geometry was all about what? Congruent angles. And you could tell, if I knew this angle, I could know that angle. And that was all that, well, I couldn't figure out the first angle, but if I knew that, then I figured out that I could, or I was at least supposed to. And congruent angles, if I could figure out one, I could figure out the next. And Paul is saying this to the church of Corinth, Take your thoughts captive. Because if you don't, they're going to take you captive. There was a, a woman, I may have shared this with you before, but thunderstorms, I love thunderstorms. When it thunders, now when it snows, I don't know if I really like it or not, but when thunder happens, like my heart, I sleep better. Does anybody sleep better during thunderstorms? When it rains, when it's storm, you're just like, you just knock out. I mean, it's like you're at the, you know, you're at the dentist, anesthesia, you wake up, you're like, I got some good sleep. It must have been a thunderstorm last night, right? And then then the other friend's like, did you hear the storm last night? You're like, no, not a bit. Slept great. They're like, well, it's interesting. My dad was telling me about a a lady uh, that when she grew up, her parents told her, anytime a thunderstorm happened, you got to get under the table. Got to get under the table. So this grown woman now turns all the lights off and gets under the table and brings her, brings her kids with her and got to get under the table, there's a thunderstorm. So she, why did she do that? My dad said, why do you do that? Well, my parents did it. Well, you do realize that's irrational, completely illogical, that, that first of all, a table would save you if the thing collapsed. Secondarily, that, that the, the house is the safest place you could be. But what happens? If you don't take your thoughts captive, your thoughts will take you captive. And Paul says this, you have to understand that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. In other words, they're not aggressive. They're not swords and spears. What are they? They're to take thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ that Jesus paid it all and there is no eternal conflict. There is no dualistic God. It is not God versus Satan. That is not what's taking place. Jesus looks at Satan in Matthew chapter 4 when he's out in the desert and just simply says, the Lord rebuke you. Don't test the Lord your God. He doesn't engage in spiritual warfare. That's really intriguing to me. Sorry, I heard something. He doesn't, he doesn't go into it. What's interesting? Now, I want to just pull this point out a little bit bigger. If you have your Bibles, look at Ephesians chapter 6 very quickly. Because I, I want you to be free with this. Because uh, I, I, I don't know where you engage in spiritual warfare, what that feels like. Maybe you feel something battling against you. And I'm not saying it's not real. Oh, it's real. But you truly, as a Christian, determine the level of its magnitude in your life. It's absolutely real. It's absolutely real. But the lie of spiritual warfare is that the war is still raging. This is interesting. This is the really the grand passage on spiritual warfare in Ephesians chapter 6. Paul begins to tell them, finally, brothers, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Now, this sounds, doesn't this sound like you're going to go out and just fight somebody? 
Let me, just, let me just talk this to you real quick. I'm going to fight somebody. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all things to stand firm. Stand therefore. Having fastened on the belt of truth, having putting on the, ble- the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that my words may be given to me, in opening my mouth, boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Now this is really interesting to me. I was reading that the other day, and I've been praying about this, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, the lie of spiritual warfare is that the war rages on. The lie of spiritual warfare is that Satan still has power and dominion in this world. And I started reading Ephesians 6, I'm going, okay, well, we don't wrestle flesh and blood. And I realized, you know, the one thing he doesn't do is give a battle plan. He doesn't tell us how to attack the enemy. Did you see that? What does he tell over and over and over and over? Stand your ground. Stand your ground. I'm going, well, okay, well, I got a sword, but he never tells me to use it other than pray. He never tells me go after Satan and pillage the you know, Satan's territory. He just simply says, put on the armor of God and stand your ground. In other words, do not retreat. Don't forget who you are. Arm yourself with the identity of God and stand firm. I love it. He says, having done all things to stand. Stand. (laughs) Isn't that great? Having done everything. Just do it again. That's the game plan. As Christians, we have to have a solid understanding that the victory in Christ is won. That when we come against spiritual warfare, it is not from a posture of defeat, nor is it from a posture of engagement. The book of Jude says it like this, that when Lucifer was battling Michael, the archangel over Moses' body. Talk about a weird passage. That's for next week. Jesse will preach on that. Um, strange passage. You know, what, you know what Michael looks at him and says, Satan, the Lord rebuke you. He doesn't engage. He doesn't attack. He doesn't fight. He doesn't bang his head against the wall. He doesn't say, how can I get rid of this battle that I'm in? How can I figure this thing out? Because I'm telling you, Satan would love nothing more than to convince you that you are surrounded, trapped, confused, and disempowered. And Christ would want nothing more than for you to know your identity in him, that you are more free than you could ever believe. C.S. Lewis, his uh, book, The Screwtape Letters, it's interesting, there's a quote, there's this dialogue going back between, you know, the demonic powers in it. And one of the demons says... Christians and everyone thinks that we're trying to put things into people's minds. Our goal is to keep things out of their mind. That's interesting. Satan would want nothing more than for you to believe that he is a dragon that could kill you at any moment. That you are disempowered and God would want nothing more 
and for you to realize your identity in Christ. Let me say that again. The lie of spiritual warfare is that it's still raging. Ephesians chapter 1. In a moment, we're going to make a declaration. Don't bring it on the screen yet. I began to pray these prayers, and I'm thinking, I'm, and this is just a personal revelation, but I want to encourage you this morning with it. I believe that the battle in your life, it's real. It's real in my life. It's hard. But spiritual maturity does not look like defeat. Have you ever met anyone like that? Talk to somebody that's like, I mean, they're really like, you look in there, that's a mature Christian. And every time you talk to them, they look like they are just in pain. You see Grimace from McDonald's? He's the poster boy of spiritual warfare. Right? How's things going? I'm under it today. How's it? Struggling. And they always, uh, what's going on? Having a tough one. Listen, I'm not trying to say that spiritual warfare is not real. It is. I'm trying to say that our God, the number one name that is used in the scripture, is the God of the angel armies. It's not that warfare is not real, it's that it's defeated. He's disarmed, he is spoiled, he no longer has power. It's interesting in Matthew chapter 4, and then I'm going to close with Ephesians in a second. Matthew chapter 4, Satan looks at Jesus and says, I'll give you the kingdoms of this world. Isn't that interesting? He brings up on the mountain. Here's the kingdoms of this world. Take them. Just bow down and worship me. I'll give you whatever you want. Jesus, of course, denies the opportunity to do that. Why could Satan give him the kingdoms of the world? The only reason he could is because Adam and Eve gave it to him in the garden. That's the only reason. Satan only has the rights in your life that you give him. Only has the rights in your life that you give him. If you hand Satan the right to constantly beat yourself up, to constantly pull you down, to constantly speak negativity to yourself, to constantly keep you bound and broken and beat down, I'm sure he would love to do that. But if you say that is not my identity in Christ, he does not have the right to do that. I so long to see people catch a revelation of the finished work of Christ. It doesn't make sense to me. You, talk, you get around people that really enjoy spiritual warfare. At first, they're a little kooky. But if you really get around them and talk with them, most of the time, there's very little talk about Jesus. Jesus is just kind of the guy that, like, you know, died on the sins, just couldn't, he died on the cross for us and just couldn't get the job fully done. You know what I mean? He can get us to heaven, he just can't get us free on earth. I said it. You know what I mean? He just... He's enough to get us there, and when we get to heaven, we'll be free, and we'll finally be set. We'll fi- Listen, I'm all about that. But I also recognize that God did something in space and time. And God did not send his son to die for us to get us to heaven. I know that may sound offensive. It's intentional. That is the beginning, not the end. If that was the goal, you would have the Star Trek beam me up Scotty experience the moment you accepted Christ. If, the, if this whole thing was about just getting to heaven, the moment you'd accept him, we'd be, I don't know where I'm going. I'll see you later, Mom and Dad. I'm floating up to the sky. I don't know what's happening. I just accepted Jesus as my Savior. You should too. Follow me, right? That's not what happens. That's not what happens. The goal, Jesus didn't say, I came to get you to heaven. Jesus said, I came to give you life and life abundantly. 
I came to bring you a new creation reality. What does that mean? It means in me, the very thing that you're searching for, you can have joy and peace and freedom and a sound mind and that you can go to bed at night without your heart constantly racing, that you don't have to be mastered by some idol or addiction, but that you can live a life that is free. I came to give you life and life abundantly. That's what's available. And this morning, Satan would love for us to continue to empower him as a dragon. But again, I'll say it, he starts as a snake in the garden, he ends as a dragon. Who changed? Did our perception of him change? Or did he somehow magically grow? Because the last thing I saw was what? God cut his legs off. In the book of Romans, Paul says this, the God of peace, I love that, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. If Satan's a dragon, I'm sorry, you can't crush him under your feet. You can't crush a beagle under your foot. Let alone a a dragon. Have you seen the the most recent Lord of the Rings? Sorry, I know Kenny's going to not pay attention to the rest of the service. (laughs) Have you seen the most... Reason that the dragon, I'm about to try to crush that under your feet. You can't crush a dragon under your feet. You can crush a snake. Satan is defeated. Satan is vanquished. Now you're saying, but the battle still rages. It does. But this is what happens. We live in a world very much in, the, in, in a sense like this. When you play uh, chess, when you put somebody in checkmate, the game is over. But it's not fully over until you take that piece and walk away. Satan is in checkmate. It's over. It's done. He has no more moves. God is not in heaven sitting there going, Oh man, how are we going to wrap this thing up? This world is, you know, this world's, Satan's really, really, really doing it here. You know, how are we going to pull this thing together? No, we also see in 2 Corinthians, the scripture says this, that the God of this age, speaking of Satan, little g, has blinded the eyes of unbelievers, lest they believe. In other words, Satan is smoke and mirrors, constantly trying to say the battle rages on, lest they believe, the scripture says, the glorious light of the gospel. I want you to be free in who you are, and as I close with this, I want to challenge you with something to begin to do. And I'm not talking about just Sunday and then you leave and then, oh, I forgot to do this. I want to challenge you to begin to do this. That you would pray the prayers of the Bible personally. I started doing this recently and it's absolutely changed my perspective. And I'm, I, and I'm saying this because I believe it'll change yours. I used to read over the book of Ephesians and kind of mumble through it. I wouldn't even pray it because I'm reading somebody else's prayer and I didn't realize Paul is not just praying for people that lived 2,000 years ago. Paul is praying for Christians. If you'll stand with me as we close this morning, worship team, if you would come. I want to put this declaration up on the screen. And this is Ephesians chapter 1. We had a leader in, um, when I was a youth in youth. Every time he'd give his testimony, can I, can I give you the testimony? This is what it was every time. Yeah, you know, when I was young, um, uh, yeah, you know, when I was young, uh, 
Man, all, all of the girls really loved me. I was super popular. And just he'd go on for about 10 minutes about how great of a football player he was, how great of an athlete he was, how amazing he was. And then his testimony would end like this. Yeah, and then I came to Jesus. The end. And every time I'd walk out of there, I'd be so confused. I'm like, I can't tell if you're happy, you're, you're, you're a Christian, or if you're like bummed that you got saved and Jesus sentenced you to a life in church. You know what I mean? Like, I was so cool and then I, you know, I'm going to go to heaven forever, but I just got to put up with this terrible church thing for the next, like, 60 years unless I die early. <laughs> you know what I mean, though? I was so cool in high school, like, literally everyone liked me. I was a star. Like, man, we had so much fun, man. I remember this one party, and I got saved. I would walk away from him every time, and I'd think to myself, like, I feel bad that Jesus saved him. I really do. Like, I, I kind of wish he didn't, because the guy would much, he'd be much more happier if he wouldn't have come to Christ. Like, the guy's just bummed out. Listen, coming, coming to Christ is not about just getting to heaven. And, and when I say that, uh, just, just read, read the scripture. It's not about just getting to heaven. Listen, th- th- that's already there. If you're in Christ, period, it's done. The book of John chapter 3 says it like this, that when you are born again, I want you to see this, that when you're born again, the scripture says, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom. Have you ever walked around in a dark room? Walk around, I wear contacts, so in the morning, if I'm, you know, I'm walking around, I can't see, you stub your toe on something, you bump your head into something, it's dark, you can't see. You don't have uh, the ability. You know, before you're a Christian, church is, is, is dumb. Amen. The idea of coming and sitting in a hard wooden pew, listening to somebody rant and rave about some mysterical, you know, mysterical being named Satan, singing a couple songs, the idea of it is just weird. Because you can't see. You can't see the kingdom. The idea of giving it an offering have you ever met anybody like that? You talk with them and they're like, all churches want is, all they want is your money. That's it. Here it goes. He asked for an offering again this week. Well, they do that every week, but all they want there is your money. That's all it's about. But how many people know that when you see the kingdom, giving money, it's not giving money to a church, it's giving money to the Lord. It makes sense. It's not all they want is money. It's, Lord, I, I want to give because I see something that I couldn't see before. Before I see the resurrection, before I see Christ, I'm, I'm bound. I can't see anything. Satan is big. But once I see the kingdom, I go, oh, I see him. He's just a little snake. This thing I'm battling, I'm so concerned about, it's time I take that thought captive rather than it taking me captive. I'm going to put this up on the screen now, and I want you to declare this. And I would encourage you, I can't force you, but in the strongest Christian manipulation I can conjure up, for your own good... I would encourage you when you wake up in the morning to start to do this because just as in the Garden of Eden, just the same way, you're standing there in one ear, you have Satan whispering, let me tell you who you are this morning. Let me tell you who you are. This, let me tell you what your family looks like. Let me tell you what you're worth. Let me tell you your value. And on the other side, we have God's word which has spoken our identity and it's up to us who I agree with. 
because Satan and this world will give you an identity or I can look at it. Let's declare this together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed me in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he has chose me in him before the foundation of the world that I should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined me for the adoption, whoever you are, son or daughter, through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace which he has blessed me in the beloved. In him I have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon me in all wisdom and insight. I hope you would do that, and I hope it would sink into you. Don't read the Bible just as some letter that was written 2,000 years ago, I promise you. When you wake up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, begin to declare, this is who I am. This is my identity. This is who I am in Christ.